Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everybody. Good morning. It's lovely to see you all for our second of our、um, seminars. And、uh, before we begin, why don't I pray for for God's help? Let, let's pray together. Dear God, we praise you. We we worship you. That you are a, a good God who has revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture in your Word. We thank you for all that we've been learning、uh, over the past、uh, few days.、Um, we thank you for the ways you have challenged and convicted us. We thank you that we can turn again to your Word right now, and we will be turning to something that has been historically very challenging,、uh, sometimes controversial. And so we pray for your help to be humble, to hear what you have to say,、um, to really listen, to submit to your authority, and not our、uh, supposedly better ideas. And help us to just show real kindness to one another.、Um, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Guys, I want to make. Two little points before we we even start, and it's first that Kirsty and I are really excited to to do this、um, seminar.、Uh, we 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 loved、um, studying it. We've loved growing in our own convictions. We don't have all the answers. There are lots of things that we still don't know,、uh, and we might never. But God's word is clear at points, and that's what we really want to bring out. And I hope we'll all be encouraged as a result. Um, but my second disclaimer or, or point: we are excited, yes. But、um, though this was advertised as a seminar, it kind of is. But it will also be a, a lot of us talking. This is a really serious topic that spans all of Scripture, and so there is a, a considerable amount of content.、Uh, you all should have a, a, a two-page handout that was given to you. If you don't have one, then we'll make sure you get one. You all seem to have one. Um, uh, and so, for that reason, the, it might be a little bit different than advertised in terms of lots of time in our, our discussion groups. We will go and look at scripture、um, together, but、uh, we won't just yet.、Um, before Kirsty comes up, I'd love for you, in your little twos or threes, to ask why does this question matter? The idea of men and women having Gender roles within the church. Why does this question even matter? Are there any questions that you yourself have? Maybe you know discuss that in your your little twos and threes. Hopefully, we'll address some of your questions. If we don't, there's Q and A, and there's still another two days for us to chat about this through. So, in your twos and threes, do that, and then、uh, Kirsty will, will will bring us back together in a few minutes. Okay, go, guys. I'm going to bring us back there.、Um, By that level of chat, I can hear there's a lot of questions,、um, and I can promise you that we will not answer all of them in the next time, which you're very glad for because it means you get both lunch and dinner.、Um, but I think it's really important to acknowledge upfront that none of us are neutral as we come to this topic.、Um, we are all formed and forged by our very point in history, by our cultural and、um, backgrounds, by church experience, education, and even. Our friendship groups, and therefore, just as John prayed, we need to be humble and we need to be prayerful as we consider this topic and actually any big topic、um, together. 
And we also want to acknowledge right up front that we are aware that some in this room may have been bruised or scarred by an abusive interpretation of God's good design for men and women. Um, If that is you, we are so sorry. And we would love to chat, either John or I or any of the elders, um, if that would be of use or of help to you. Now, I don't need to tell you that we live in a Scotland where the question of gender is at best confused and at worst totally denied. There have been some wonderful um, leaps of progress made in the area of equality over the last century that we're right to celebrate. Things like votes for women or equal pay in sports and in business. But there has also been a worrying acceleration in a desire to erase any idea of distinction between men and women. Um, This is a topic that I think we can feel increasingly nervous about discussing, particularly as young Christians, when we see the growing polarity in our society between different views. And I think we can instinctively want to ask, where does the church kind of sit on a spectrum between feminism on one side and patriarchy or even misogyny on the other? But that is totally the wrong approach. Because as a church, we're neither conforming to the way culture's going, nor do we simply just react against it. But instead, we submit ourselves to our God, our maker, and our Lord. So the question that really matters right at the start of this discussion is who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to trust? And John and I have included that quote from a New Testament scholar, American author, um, Claire Smith, um, on your handout, because we think it's just a beautiful summary of um, where we would love this seminar to go. Because in patriarchy, the relationship between men and women is like a drumbeat hammered out by men. Feminism is a race. Anything he can do, I can do better. But God's pattern is that of a dance. And so today, we would love to explore the ideas and the complexity of that dance together. So we're going to look at that first point, the great divide. So considering the topic that we're talking about, you might be thinking the great divide in humanity is surely that between men and women, the good old battle of the sexes. And whilst the Bible um, is clear that one of the most fundamental distinctions um, in the human race is that of gender, and the Bible is also super realistic of the mess and the conflict that comes from that distinction playing out in a sinful world, it is not actually the great divide. Instead, the great divide that runs like a chasm through the whole of the human race is much deeper than gender. It is the divide between two templates for humanity, a fallen, grasping humanity in Adam, a redeemed, serving humanity in Jesus Christ. Um, If you've been doing Romans and Life Groups, this should sound super familiar. So first, we must remember where that divide began, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent whispered to Eve and to Adam, God knows that when you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will be like God. And so as Eve grasped that fruit, she grasped for equality with God. Adam and Eve denied God's goodness. They disobeyed his word and they pursued their own gains. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's a world history shaped by power struggle and ruthless ambition. 
A story starring a selfish, grasping humanity that rejected God while it indulges in living in his glorious world. But God sent a second Adam, a saviour who offers life as a renewed and restored humanity. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Um, Do turn it up if you've got a Bible. And Hannah's going to read that for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Hannah. Just one of the reasons that I love this passage so much is the absolutely stunning picture that it gives us of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who is the form of God, and therefore he is God, the only one who had any right to assert his equality with God, and yet he did not consider it something to be grasped. Instead, he entered creation in the form of a servant. The creator willingly went to the cross for his own rebellious creation. And Paul in this hymn is deliberately evoking Adam as a contrast to see that Jesus is his total opposite. So you'll see on your handouts that we've Um, created a table comparing Adam and Jesus. Um, It might be well worth in your own time, maybe as a devotional time, um, reading Genesis, reading Philippians, and just comparing um, the two. And what we discover is that as Adam grasped for equality with his creator, Jesus humbled himself to come in the form of his creation. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, while Adam was disobedient unto death. And famously, as Adam exalted himself, Jesus instead humbled himself. We could go on, but I think the point is clear, isn't it? That there are two templates for humanity. There is that grasping, selfish humanity, a breaking out from authority humanity that seeks to serve self at any cost. And then there is Jesus' humanity. A wonderful template of of the way that God has designed us to be a giving humanity, a cross-shaped humanity, obedient, willing to give things up and lay rights aside in service of God and in service of others. We really hope that you agree with us that Jesus is the better humanity. And moreover, if we're Christians, then we needed Jesus to be that humanity in order to save us. Because if Jesus had fairly just held on to his equality with God, then we would have no hope at all. So let's praise the Lord that Jesus indeed has freed us from our old grasping ways and has therefore restored us to become a new humanity. But the point, of course, is that this pattern of Jesus's humanity sets the pattern for this renewed vision of humanity. 
And this is Paul's point in uh, verse 5, as Hannah read for us, that um, have the same mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. So as men and women together, we are to hear the common call to cross-shaped service. Submission and sacrificial love are to characterize the Christian. We will see that this is to play out in the beautiful equality and distinction that has been God's pattern the whole way through the Bible. And it is tempting, I think, when we come to a topic like this, I know uh, definitely myself, to come with a very me-centered attitude. What am I allowed to do? Or what is he not allowed to do? But in Christ, we actually want to be asking that question of how can we best serve God together as men and women? Or perhaps even more precisely, how are the ways that I can live out my identity to better serve my brothers and my sisters in Christ? Because as part of this new humanity, we are part of a new family. And that's why the New Testament uses that one another language that we come across all the time. Because we are equal in Christ, and that is a wonderful thing. And so the primary way that we are to view one another is as those that the servant king has chosen to die for. So the people sat in this room, sat next to you in this room, they are your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. And that is how we are to think of them, to speak of them, um, and to relate to them. Beautiful dance, even as we get up on and off the stage. Um, thank you so much, Kirsty. That, that's the framework we want to view this entire question through. And Kirsty said it really helpfully. Submission and self-sacrifice should characterize the Christian and that, that, that's the, the framework by which we will see everything. Let's go right to the beginning, though. Let's look at where these distinctions and where this equality that Kirsty mentioned comes from. We're going to be in, in Genesis 1 to 3. And um, we're going to read. Um, Owen's going to read for us. Uh, Genesis 1 Verses 26 to, to 28. Oh, and you can read from there, or feel free to come up. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We all could have guessed what he was going to choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing thing that moves on the earth. Thank you, mate. I wonder even as as Owen was reading, did you notice how radical and and foundational the equality is with which men and women are are created? Verse 26 says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We, We can tell from the verse that man doesn't mean male. It means men and women. Because in verse 26, God says, let them have dominion over the fish and the birds and and so on. 
And then, in verse 27, it's made really clear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. There's absolute and foundational equality between men and women so that together, male and female alike, image God. In a very real sense... If all there was were men, we would not effectively image God on our own. The the illustration that was used by one of our old pastors was simply that if all the ladies left the room right now, the men left in this room would not image God effectively as we were designed to. That is how foundational and radical the equality of the creation story is. But alongside this absolute equality, I think that's what we called it in in the handout, you also notice that there is an, an equally clear distinction. The image of God is made up of men and women, male and female. And so... While with the rest of our culture and world we want to say, yes, men and women are equal, we also want to go against our culture and say that men and women are different. God has made us biologically distinct from one another. God gives us maleness and femaleness, which is fixed. It's not something that we can choose or ignore or choose to identify with or not. It simply is how God made us. Now, these created norms are expressed in in, in different ways. They have been throughout history and geography, depending on where you grew up, what country you're from, what your family is like. There will be aspects about malehood and femalehood that are expressed somewhat differently and distinctly. But at the heart of the distinction is man and woman. And the big implication that we draw out from this key passage that takes us all the way back to the beginning is that there is absolute equality with beautiful distinction as we image God together. Let's turn to, to, to Genesis 2. Uh, um, Genesis 2, verses 7 to 8. On your handout, it, in the second page, where, where we're at right now, it should just say Genesis 2. We're going to be looking at several verses in it, but I've written 7 to 8 there, unhelpfully. Um, two, 2, verses 7 to 8. We, we see that man was created first. Adam was created first in order to work. He's commissioned by God to work here as we see why mankind was created. And so I'm reading from verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Why did he put man there? Jump down to to verse 15 with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These are uh, words that that crop up throughout the Old Testament. Work and, and keep. They are words to do with guarding and extending what God has done. And they're applied to, to the priests. 
in, in the tabernacle and in the temple that might come up tomorrow in, in Jonti's talk. Uh, and so here is a really high calling. The man is a, a steward of what God has created and an agent of God to promote the rule of God in the world that he's made. But he is not able to do that alone. Will you drop to, to, to verse 18 with me? Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We see that the creation of Eve as the, the necessary helper for man in, in God's world. And at this point, we might feel a little uncomfortable. The word helper sounds inferior, a bit menial, maybe even demeaning for the woman. But I can't stress this enough. It, it's really important that we see that this is a marker of equal dignity. The word helper that God says is necessary for the man is the very word used to describe God in relation to his people. God is the helper of his people. God is the helper of Israel. Of Israel. God comes alongside Israel. And so it cannot be that helper is a demeaning or subservient title because it is used of the God who created all things, who created you and me, who created Adam and Eve. And rather, it's a title of wonderful dignity that helps us to understand what it means for, for Eve to be Adam's helper. A helper is given to fulfill the, the mission that God has given to humanity, to serve alongside Adam. Serving God in the working and keeping within the world that God has made. It, the first instance of teamwork making the dream work. And again, it's not subservient or, or hierarchically lesser. Instead, another picture of absolute equality, but with clear distinction, as both man and woman image God and work in his world. Humanity was made to be united in serving God as men and women together. It's really important that we, we see this because this is how God made the world before the fall, before sin comes in. The, the ordering of, of equality and yet distinction is not some post-fall thing, but something God put in place at the start. It is, however, as we all well know, Something that has been complete, completely affected by the fall and by sin. And so we turn to Genesis 3. Uh, we won't spend lots of time on this. Kirsty already mentioned Genesis 3 and the actions of Adam as the polar opposite of that of Jesus in Philippians 2. What is worth mentioning is that by listening to the serpent and rejecting God's good design and wanting to be gods themselves, Adam and Eve are, are punished and their relationship, one with another, is broken and distorted. So we, we read in, in chapter 3, verse 16. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That, that equal but distinct partnership in the service of God is, is now broken. Eve, Eve's desire, we are told, will be for her husband. Desire is a super loaded term. In the next chapter, it's maybe even on the same page of your Bible, in chapter 4, I think it's verse 7. Um, sin desires to have you, is how God says to Cain. It's a desire for control, where there should be no control. And similarly, when, when Adam is described as, as ruling over Eve, that's now the language of oppression or harsh authority un- and wielded unkindly. Now, that's a really quick survey of the creation account and, and God's good design from the very beginning. But I, but I hope we can start to see that right from the get-go, God's good design was absolute equality with beautiful distinction united in imaging and serving God. We're going to move on to, to the New Testament. Um, but before that, we're going to get back into our little groups. Kirsty and I are persuaded that there is continuity between these principles that we see in the, the Genesis uh, creation account and in the New Testament. Um, and so... Win our small groups. What are we going to be doing, Kirsty? We're going to look in our handout. Yes, exactly. So, you'll notice that there's two boxes right at the bottom of, of page two. Does Jesus uphold God's original design in the New Testament? What I'd love for us to do is to go through as many of those passages as you are able in the next few minutes. Just uh, It doesn't have to be deep thoughts and rigorous exegesis, just... What the, the, the table says, where do we see absolute equality, beautiful distinction, and united service? So let's get into our groups with our Bibles open, and uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll draw things together in a wee bit. Um, there seems to be a natural lull, um, so I'm going to keep us moving. But if you haven't got to the end, don't worry. Um, great opportunity to keep um, looking, keep exploring those passages. But I hope that you have seen, um, as we did, that Jesus does indeed um, uphold God's really good design from way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, So just a couple of um, ones that we've really enjoyed. Um, Looking at the equality um, with which Jesus treats women. Women are the first people who he appears to when he rises from the dead. And they are the first witnesses that he commissions to go and tell people of his resurrection. Um, Fun fact, well, actually it's not a fun fact, it's a horrific fact. Um, In the Jewish and Greco-Roman law court, women were not allowed to give testimony. They had no right to witness. So the fact that Jesus puts such weight on the witness of women is more countercultural than I think we can actually absorb or understand. But he also upholds that um, glorious, beautiful distinction, doesn't he? So we see that he um, isn't afraid of being countercultural, but he chooses um, to appoint 12 male disciples. When in Acts 2, they're discussing how to replace um, Judas. One of the specifications is that that has to be someone who's been with Jesus, and the other is that it has to be a guy. 
And then Paul continues to use his pattern in 1 Timothy when he speaks about appointing male elders. But we see that this equality and this distinction is all played out in united service, and that is all over the New Testament. Um, a beautiful example being Priscilla and Aquila, um, who together helped to teach um, a fellow disciple, Apollos, um, as in a fellow follower of Jesus, um, Apollos. Um, Priscilla, if you don't know, that is actually a woman's name. Um, so we assume they're a married couple um, who are working to serve God together and encourage um, a fellow brother in Christ. So I hope from that um, that we've all been able to enjoy that Jesus upholds um, God's really, really good design um, for absolute equality with beautiful distinction. Jesus was very countercultural in the way that he treated women. And it is not just in creation, but it is in our justification, in our salvation, and in our mission that men and women are equal. Because you cannot be more or less united to the Lord Jesus. And yet the Lord Jesus also upholds that beautiful distinction. It is something that we see throughout the New Testament, and particularly in the church. And John's going to come and explore one of the key passages about that for us. Let's turn to the New Testament and to some very specific passages, some of the most um, talked about, discussed, um, controversial, some would say, uh, passages. Um, we're, we're on the next page of the handout, God's good design in God's family. There, there's some scripture references there uh, at the top that might be helpful. Let me begin by just echoing what, what, what Kirsty said. There are all sorts of distinctions that the Bible doesn't make. There is absolute equality in the New Testament among God's people in the church in terms of gifts, keenness, insights and understanding, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, salvation. And similarly, in the New Testament, women pray, women prophesy. That's a, a, a loaded one. We can have that conversation over lunch if you like. Women are chosen to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. Kirsty mentioned that women are our missionaries. And yet there is a distinction that the Bible does make, and it is willing submission, and for some men, not all, cross-shaped responsibility in the church. So let's look at that, that first one together, the willing submission, and we're turning to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I haven't prompted people to, to read, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Elise, would you mind reading 1 Timothy 2 verses 8 to 15? Thank you, Paul. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disrupting. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Thank you very much, Elise. Now, the, the context of this passage seems to be that there, there are women in, in Timothy's church that are using the, the gospel as a pretext for abandoning their gender roles. Paul's assumption is that in the church there will be men, 
who are given overall responsibility for, for leading it. You'll see that in the fact that he forbids women to teach or to have authority over a man. And he comes on to that again in chapter 3 in terms of who he suggests should be picked to be overseers and, and leaders of, of the church. But how do we respond to, to Paul's words, I do not permit? The, these are the, the controversial words that, that lead some to say that the Apostle Paul hates women. Uh, we, we'd like to make the case that that isn't true from 1 Timothy 2 itself. So, so let's take a, a closer look. Let's, let's dig deeper. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. It's easy for us to think of those as two separate things. Um, teach on one side and authority on the other. And yet this is one of those places where it's really important to, to look at the language uh, really closely and carefully. The word or that links teaching and authority in the Greek links both in, in, in such a way that, that both are in conversation with each other. This is a coordinating conjunction. I had to go through my old lecture notes and I had to go through it because I want to I do this well and we want to look at it accurately. It's not teach over here and then authority over there, two things that are banned. Rather, it's teaching with authority that Paul says women are, are not permitted to have. That, that's really important because one thing we're incredibly passionate about as a church is promoting and encouraging and making opportunities where Scripture allows for men and women to teach. Colossians 3 clearly states that the whole church should teach one another. And the same word teach is used in Colossians 3 as it is in 1 Timothy 2. And that's why precision and care in handling God's word is required. And so this isn't a blanket ban on teaching or public speaking in the church but a particular teaching with authority and in the context in which Paul is speaking it's fair to assume that the teaching with authority is happening when the church is gathered and when it is being instructed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus that's what Timothy is all about and um, Paul says to Timothy if I don't return I have written these things down so that you may know how to serve, how to live in God's household, in the, the, the church. When the word of God is being taught to the people of God with the authority of God, that is what he is referring to. This is how we would understand preaching in our church. That was touched a little bit uh, this morning and really, really helpfully. Uh, and this is um, not just a, a semi-engaging conversation on, on some key verses from the Bible, not even an, an educational session, like, like a lecture where we learn stuff about God, but rather a, an ongoing process of passing on to God's people the authoritative gospel that he has given to us so that we may grow to be like Jesus and people might be saved. That is the particular teaching that Paul says it is not permitted for women. 
for the sake of clarity, and, and, and Hillary and I have found this helpful when we've discussed this uh, as a couple, the conversation is often framed in terms of men versus women, and it's always men, all men versus all women, and that's just a wrong way to think about it. 1 Timothy simply won't allow that. In chapter 3, you would see that authoritative teaching isn't permitted for a whole load of men. In fact, most men. It's not something that every guy gets to do by, by virtue of his anatomy. The point of the list of qualifications is that not every person will be a man like this. This is teaching with authority that is only for a few men within the church. And let's, let's notice the, the, the reason that Paul gives, and it's there in verse four, uh, 13 for us. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Some would argue strongly that this is just a cultural thing for, for Timothy's church at the time of its writing. The church in, in Ephesus was a city renowned for its worship of the goddess Diana and Artemis, and there was a sense of militant feminism that would seek to usurp authority. And so, some would say, it's crazy to use these verses for us today to govern <clears throat> excuse me, how we do church. However, the problem is that Paul doesn't say, because you have women who have a problem with Diana worship or who have been converted from a radical feminist background, rather Paul goes right back to creation and, and not to culture. Paul says that there is an ordering in the creation account. We didn't discuss this at length earlier. Um, Adam was made first, then Eve. Adam was tasked with naming animals and given the leadership. And as Paul exegetes Genesis, this is where he arrives. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He's not saying that women are more gullible than men. Elsewhere, in Romans 5 and 6, Paul lays the blame for the fall at Adam's feet. He's the one who falls and whose work is undone by Jesus, as we saw in Philippians at the beginning. Rather, Paul again goes to, to Eden and the order of creation. And he appeals to that and says, that is the reason why men are to be elders who do the teaching with authority. It's not that one is better than the other or of more worth. Paul is driving home distinction. And that is it. The question for us, because it's hard, is are we willing to submit to Scripture on this matter? But I want to, 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 to throw one thing uh, else in there, uh, and it's the counterpart to this really hard, willing submission. And that is that for some of the men in the church, it will look like cross-shaped responsibility for, for leading it and for being the leaders in, in God's family. And the, the leadership we are talking about is radically cross-shaped. Um, let's turn to Mark 10, um, verses 42 to 45. Jonathan, could you please read that for us? 
Mark 10, 42 to, to 45. That would be super helpful. Thanks, bro. Thank you so much. Here, uh, Jesus is talking about what the leaders of his people should be like. He's addressing the male future leaders of his church, the disciples, and he says to them that they are not to be like the Gentiles, lording it over people. Rather, they are to be like him. Humanity in Jesus, remember, from the table. He served and gave his life as a ransom for many. You can tell that Peter at least was listening, because if you turn to to 1 Peter 5, let's do that in our Bibles right now, Peter reapplies the lesson. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. Aaron, could you read it for us, please? Thanks, man. Thank you, Aaron. Um, They too, as Peter um, taught the elders of this church, they are to to not lord it over the people that are in their care. And he even says that you ought to be willing and not to serve under compulsion. It's worth asking the question, just for one moment, why is it that the leaders that Peter is writing to might not be willing and might be serving under compulsion? And the reason is that Peter is writing to a church that are facing persecution. And they know that as leaders of the church, they're going to be the first under the bus. And you would be unwilling, wouldn't you? If leading the church meant that you might go to prison next week or might be killed. But but that's the point. Leadership in the family of God is about cross-shaped responsibility. It's about being willing to to lay your life down for the sake of the people whom God has given you to look after. Paul, when he describes Christian leadership and what it looks like, he describes it as slavery. I want us to turn to one more um, New Testament passage to to, to talk about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 to 13. Mark, could you read it for us? Thanks. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, verses 9 to 13, unhelpfully not in your uh, handout.
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and, sit, and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Thank you, Mark. Here's Paul's description of what it's like to be a, a, a leader of God's people. He says, we're hungry, thirsty, homeless. We labor and are reviled. We are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There's a distinction here. Paul seems to expect quite clearly that there will be men who are responsible for leading in the church, which will mean that they are responsible for the authoritative teaching of the church, which will mean that they are responsible for opposing false teaching, which will mean that they are in charge. And yet... That leadership is described as slavery and sacrifice and suffering. It's worth taking a moment to understand what we're saying. There's a a distinction in, in roles, but it's not that some people, that some men, are free to pursue their dreams and other people aren't. It's that some people are the ones with whom the buck will stop. When things get really difficult. It's so easy for our our vision of ministry or church leadership to be all about self-fulfillment and fame and about greatness. Some people think that it's not worth getting into ministry. Um, If you're not going to be the pastor of a, a mega church or get a reputation out of it or a book deal or a popular podcast or a small fortune whether it's the the, the Church of England or the Church of Scotland and other similar churches where women have been allowed to become ministers or or bishops, this this line was used all the time. Finally, the glass ceiling has been broken. We can rise to the top. And it's not surprising that they use that language and that tone because there are a whole bunch of men in churches who think it's appropriate for ministers of the gospel to hold gold-encrusted sticks, to dress in incredibly expensive clothes, to adopt long titles and to sit on important boards and be at royal weddings, in the seat of honor, some literally sitting on thrones. I went um, on a mission trip when I was younger and we went to a, a, a mega church. And he had a really big cafe and restaurant. And the pastor had a cordoned off section in the corner just for him and his favorites. Even in our circles, because that's quite far removed perhaps. We can think that you've made it in ministry if you've got a book deal and speak at conferences. Uh, you write articles for the Gospel Coalition. No wonder that it's hard to take or hurtful if we then say that that path towards greatness and the top is only open to some. It's hard to take in a humanity in Adam kind of way. If we were really looking to serve and to be humble, we we might find it a bit easier to take, but it's not surprising that it's hard to take. Here's the thing. 
when we say that there are some men who ought to be responsible as the leaders of God's family, we're saying that they are responsible slaves. The servants of all who are willing to be the first ones to face the music. Looking up at Matty a lot as I say these things because it is a weighty and heavy calling for us. Some men are to take responsibility to die for their church. So willing submission, but to servant leadership. That is what God teaches. Now you might agree with um, our conclusions or not. I'm persuaded this is God's good design for his family, the church, in terms of its leadership. However, this does not mean that if you're not a male church leader, that your voice doesn't matter in a healthy, flourishing church. Can I draw your attention to to the graphic in your handout with the, the, the four boxes? What we've just spoken about is on, on the left of that, um, of that line. But there's a whole host of things, teaching roles, speech roles that the Bible says are open to just women and others for both men and women. And so, though the leadership of the church is by design, a few men... Men who have been called and have certain giftings and certain character. A flourishing church needs everyone. And Kirsty is going to speak a little bit more to this. Guys, I'm just going to let you all take a breath and just have a thought and then we're going to carry on. Great. Sorry, it's just, it's quite a lot. I don't know if people are like, ooh. Um, but as John says, this New Testament picture um, of a flourishing church is one where every voice is active. Um, Colossians 3, John has already um, referenced in verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Likewise, Ephesians 4, a passage we hopefully are super familiar with, we're encouraged to speak the truth in love one to another so that the whole church might grow in maturity um, in the Lord Jesus. So there is a responsibility on every single member of the church family to speak with love the truth of the gospel. Whether that's chatting to a mum after the church service, whether that's leading a life group or teaching in Sunday school, if that's praying or singing um, a hymn, whether that's meeting up with a mate over coffee, we all have a responsibility to encourage and to serve one another. Moreover, as John says, um, looking at that little graphic on your sheet, we can see that the Bible has entrusted particular ministries to particular groups and individuals um, one that I um, am hugely passionate about is that Titus 2.1, where older women are given this unique and beautiful role and responsibility to disciple younger women. Um, this is just one of the reasons why we offer one-to-ones um, to the girls in our church family. Um, it's one of the reasons that um, I will go around encouraging you to go and chat to older ladies at church and to learn from them. But also, um, why not think, I know you you don't feel that old, but there are people that are younger than you. Um, why don't you think, 
are there younger students or um, maybe some of the teenagers at church you get alongside and encourage and speak the truth of the gospel to? Because um, we've seen that just as in Genesis, it is only as men and women together that we might rightly image God. So too, it is in the church when we as men and women together live out our redeemed, beautiful, different identities that we can truly image God. And so we have um, two implications um, with which we would like to close. I know there will still be loads of questions, loads of thoughts. That's brilliant. That's what lunch is for. That's what chat is for. That's what Q&A is for. But here are some two um, implications to consider. The first is clarity, and the second is charity. Um, We want to have clarity, to hold fast to what God has said in his word, even when that's uncomfortable or it leaves us with lots of questions in our mind. Um, God is our God. He's our Savior, our Father, and our Lord. And therefore, he is the one who made us, he designed us, and he knows what is best for us. And we long... Um, to be clear where the Bible is clear, um, and to hold lightly uh, where the Bible leaves room, we too can leave room. And so even when um, our culture says we're mad, um, or potentially is looking like it's going to say more than that we're mad, or when our mates and even brothers and sisters in Christ, um, in CU or in St. Angie's, think we're mad, as a church and as individuals, we want always to be pursuing godliness in every way seeking to submit our lives more and more beautifully to the Lord Jesus. Can we say that if you think there are ways that in our church family, either in the way that we speak or we live, that we're not um, living out this belief that we've expressed about men and women, come and chat. Um, We want to be growing in that together. We know we're not perfect. We long to be um, growing together in this. And likewise, can we encourage you to think hard and to pray hard about what you believe the Bible says. We want to help you in that. That's why we do things like this seminar. Um, That's why we um, are going to talk about books that are on the bookstool. But let's keep chatting. Let's keep those Bibles open. Because ultimately, our life tells a story. It tells a story about the Savior that we follow and the God that we believe in. And our life together as a church does the same. So we want that story to be faithful We want it to be glorious. And of course, we want it to be true. Secondly, uh, we want to encourage charity. There will be brothers and sisters, perhaps in this room, definitely in St. Andrews, who disagree with us. And in Christ, we can disagree well. John and I, um, we would be massively grieved if we were to hear anyone speak carelessly or casually about people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus and disagree with us on this one. Yep, there may really sadly be people who are just going along with the culture, but we always owe it to anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus to be kind, to be gracious, um, and to be open. In this room, there will be um, probably a range of views on where we'd stake our flag on exactly how we contextually apply what some of... um, we've been exploring today that's fine um we want to just keep saying what we've been saying keep those bibles open keep chatting because it is together that we can grow more and more as a community 
that reflects the beauty of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. Downstairs um, on the wall, you might have noticed that there's a Bible verse and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And John and I um, genuinely, genuinely believe that however stiltingly, as we learn as a church family and as individuals and as students together to live out this dance of absolute equality and beautiful distinction in united service, we will truly experience that the Lord is good and that his design is good too. Now, the, the, the reason Kirsty's kind of final thoughts are so important is because of the final page. Um, we're not going to talk about this at length. It's, it's there for reference, but you'll be able to notice that there are a wide variety of views and interpretations of the things we've been talking about. We've taken that directly from, from one of the books that we, we recommend uh, at the bottom. Um, and um, I do want to uh, flag up some of those books. Um, you notice that there's a, a two columns. Um, that is because on one side, on the left, are books that would come from a position similar to ours, um, often referred to as complementarianism. Um, so Claire Smith... And uh, Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung's book is a book that we've read as a church family. We don't endorse absolutely everything in any of these books. But we do recommend that you, that you go and check them out. Uh, one thing that um, DeYoung does especially well is he goes verse by verse of everything that you could possibly imagine being controversial um, on this topic. Uh, similarly, Kathy Keller... Um, Jesus, Justice and, and Gender Roles, you, you might know she's married to, to Tim Keller, church planter in, in New York. She speaks uh, of the beauty, as, as Kirsty put it, of the distinction in our, our, our gender roles. Um, gender Agenda, um, Kirsty's been reading that, she can tell you all about it. There's a conversation, right, between a complementarian woman and an egalitarian woman who would disagree on, on, on preaching and, and the role of, of women in the church. But they kind of go back and forth chapter by chapter, right? Yeah, we wouldn't agree with where they end up, either of them. Yeah. But it's a beautiful example of how graciously they interact with the other side. And it goes through all of the passages as well. So it's a very interesting read. Yes, great. Very helpful. And there's other two books there. Um, Hearing Her Voice. Kevin DeYoung quotes that at the end of his book. He argues that this is like one of the best examples of someone from an egalitarian position arguing for women elders, women preachers. Um, I read it um, over the last uh, few weeks. It's really interesting. John Dixon would come to a very different conclusion on what preaching is. So um, he, like us, believes in the authority of scripture. How he differs with us, he, was, he would say, preaching doesn't happen today anymore. Preaching was something that happened in the New Testament by the apostles. The, the, the Greek that he turns to is, is interesting, questionable, but he says preaching doesn't happen anymore. What we have today is more like exhortation in the Colossians 3 language, so therefore gender roles doesn't apply. Uh, but that's where the position where he comes from, uh, and yet he, he argues it, it well. The last book I put there, I put it there for you as, a, as an example of, of an awful book. Um, and, 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 I, and I don't say that particularly uh, carelessly, um, I read it with one of the, the female members of our church so that together we could discuss it. 
It was really interesting, her reflections. Um, if you know Rachel Horrocks Burse uh, at church, come grab her, ask her questions. She will be very passionate about, uh, about the book. Um, Al- Beth Allison Barr doesn't believe in the authority of scripture. You remember how Kirsty opened up. Who are we turning to? Who is our authority? But an interesting read nonetheless, because it is one of the most popular books on this issue. Um, I have a, a dear member of my family who would swear by it. And so in order to have a conversation with somebody who is a Christian, but completely on the other side, who would consider themselves a liberal and that the Bible is just uh, a guide rather than our ultimate authority, super helpful to to know where they're um, coming from. Let's just uh, close with this and then we're going to pray and then we're going to go through for lunch, um, lovely soup and sausage rolls. Um, It's so easy to, to, to miss the point of what this is all about and to think that the aim of looking at the Bible's teaching on gender roles is to come up with a a list of all the things that you're allowed to do and the things you're not allowed to do. Um, Going about it like this is is hugely individualistic because your aim for looking at the topic is to come up with a list of all the things you're allowed to do. It's a kind of miserable way to approach any question, asking what do I get out of it? It's a very humanity in Adam kind of way of approaching the the question. Uh, And the point is, men and women were not created to be in competition with one another. It's not that there's this solo race to the top and that God has made some of us men and some of us women, which means that some of us have a handicap in this race. Rather, we're made different so that we can work together. This pattern of responsibility and submission is so that churches can be effective as as teams the question is how can we serve the lord in the task that he has given us together kirsty asked that several times we opened up with philippians 2 paul wants the the philippian church to be united striving together side by side for the sake of the gospel and just as the point of our gender roles is so that we can work together even more so the point of carrying the cross and laying aside, our, laying aside our rights, humbling ourselves and counting others more significant than ourselves in the path towards unity. The problem isn't the Bible's teaching on gender. The problem is that, that submission and obedience and humility and taking the responsibility to lay down your life for the sake of others They are difficult or or impossible for us to accept because even though we're Christians, we we haven't quite decided that we like the cross. I hope for all our sakes that we are willing to listen to what the Bible has to say on this issue because the Bible's way is always the best way in the end. But more than that, our hope is that even if you disagree with some of our conclusions— that you will be recommitted to cross-shaped service. It would be a disaster if you left this room signed up as a complementarian but seeking to serve yourself. That is not our aim. And that's where we're going to end. Matty, would you...